Välkommen till Freuds Toolbox, skolans inspirationspodd med fokus på känslor, relationer, lärande och ledarskap. Tillsammans med Kenneth Freud får du inspireras av och lära av nationellt och internationellt ledande experter på evidensbaserat lärande och ledarskap. Hi everyone, today's episode is definitely both for school leaders and for teachers and also other interest in how to develop our schools. Uh, in a number of episodes we talked about uh, learning and a little bit also about uh, teaching, how to teach. And today we will try to combine the two. And I had I have received many requests that uh, you need to talk to Professor Paul Kirchner. And today I will do that. Uh, he's the Emeritus Professor in Educational psycho- Psychology at the Open University of the Netherlands. And uh, as I understand, also a guest professor at the Thomas More University of Applied Science in Belgium. And Ono Kirchner Ed, I guess that is uh, a company then. Uh, so most welcome. It's, it's, it's a pleasure and my privilege to have you as guest. Thank you, Kenneth. It's uh, hopefully it'll be a pleasure. In any event, it's a privilege to be interviewed by you. Yeah, I think it will be at least really, really interesting. And uh, I would like to start in learning. I think, I mean, you're published a lot as a researcher, but today I'm more interested in you as sort of a communicator, sort of linking research and practice. And two of your latest book I read. Uh, First, how learning happens. I mean, we, we can't skip how learning happens and try to, to teach in some way. So therefore, it's interesting to, to give sort of a little basics as a start, because then we need to move on what happens in the classrooms and how should we teach. I mean, as a, I'm a principal myself, and there are so many books out there on, on teaching strategies, and every teaching strategy is the best, they claim, most often. And you need to prioritize. I mean, the teachers, they haven't got all the time in the world. They need to use it wisely and do it sort of evidence-informed. So it needs to be connected to learning. And of course, it needs to be uh, connected to research. So could you firstly sort of give a base? I mean, learning, you can't talk about learning without connect to your different memory functions, for instance. Um, I mean, I, I was very happy with um, one of your opening remarks, and that's you can't teach if you don't know how people learn. Uh, or um, well, you, you can teach, but not so successfully, probably. Yeah, but that is, that's one of the, you, you say, you, you said, you know, like it's, it's a very normal thing to know that. Although what I find in many teacher training institutions is that that's kind of like the missing paradigm um, to um, paraphrase Lee Shulman, um, and that's that they think you can teach teachers how to teach yeah. without having them first know how people learn. It's kind of like 
you can teach a doctor how to 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 make people better without yeah. teaching them how the body works, anatomy and physiology and pathology. Um, but if I look at um, what and the amount of time that's spent on it at uh, teacher training colleges on yeah. cognitive psychology, how people learn, it's actually not not enough at all. That was just to start. So I'm very happy with the beginning of yeah, uh, of this uh, this podcast with this. Thank interview. you. Uh, um, I think it's so important to then we will sort of get it down to what, what really works. Uh, yeah. Because if you look sort of at uh, Hattis meta-analysis, uh, almost any strategy can have some effect. But, exactly. Uh, but but can but you the, can you spend all that time to get such a small effect? That yeah, but also the question is, yeah. can you can you teach someone about an intervention without them knowing how it basically works. Um, if you don't, then you get doctors who give penicillin for a virus infection because yeah. they know it's an infection and they know that penicillin works, but they don't understand that the penicillin doesn't work if it's not a bacterial uh, infection. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, what it all comes down to is just like, it's not rocket science, it's not brain surgery. It's really, really very simple. Um, uh, our sensory system is bombarded with information constantly and that's how it enters us our fingers, our mouths, our noses our eyes, our ears um, if you choose to attend to it and do something with it it can go to your uh, working memory. It's called the working memory because that's where um, information processing happens. And information processing only happens on things that you attend to. Um, that's where the information is processed and when you're processing it, you make use of what you already know that's already in your long-term memory and you make that which you're processing then available in long-term memory for doing more things with it at a later point. So it's like three small interacting systems comes in sensory memory, you do something with it in your working memory and it's stored in your long-term memory. The more often you go that path of bringing it in, processing it, going in, putting it in your long-term memory, and then retrieving it from your long-term memory to do something with it in your working memory <laughs> based upon new inputs in your sensory memory, the more you walk that path, the stronger that path is. The path to the long-term memory is the storage path. Yeah. So you're talking about storage strength and the path from the long-term memory back into the working memory to do something with 
what your sensory memory has just brought in is what you call a retrieval path and retrieval strength. Yeah. Our goal is to choose didactic approaches which facilitate creating a strong memory and creating a strong retrieval path. But, but what are keys then if the long-term memory, as I understand, is, is quite big, you can store a lot. If you store it and can't find it again, how, how, do, you, how do you do to sort of make it accessible in a good way? Well, the, 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 the best way is to provide alternative pathways to retrieving it, which means, for example, um, uh, creating practice situations that are... Oh, yay. Hold on. I have to stop. Yeah. 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 I'll go back to this in a second. Yeah. Okay. Well, what you, what you, um, what's, it, it's what call. Mm. Yeah. Let's, um, it's true. The way to do this yeah. is to create as many connections in your long term memory to that memory yeah. that you have. And you can do that by, for example, varying the practice situations, variability of practice, yeah. by um, uh, interleaving. Um, yeah. uh, um, Can you uh, explain? I think so ma many teachers, at least in Sweden, are not familiar with interleaving. Can you sort of okay, explain yes. the term interleaving? What, what interleaving is um, what we normally do when we're teaching something and I'll choose something not from a very typical area. If we're talking about art and painting styles, what we'll normally do is we'll look at expressionism and we'll define expressionism and we'll give examples from expressionism and then have the students um, practice with expressionist paintings and painters. And tomorrow or two days later or next week, we'll go over to Impressionism. And the day after that or the week later, you'll go into uh, Pontalism or you'll go into Surrealism or you'll, and you keep doing that one at a time and yeah. practicing it one at a time. Um, interleaving is no, we don't practice things one at a time, but I'll teach you about expressionism, impressionism, surrealism, and pointillism. Don't choose too many of them. And we'll practice them um, in different orders. So first you'll get this painting, then you'll get that painting, then you'll this, the, 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 this, this other painter and things like that. Um, the normal way of doing it is then um, if you do it in the normal way of one at a time, after two or three tries at is this an impressionist or an expressionist, it's kind of like you don't even have to think about it. It's Of course it is. Yeah. You can also bring that to mathematics and learning uh, uh, the area of a trapezium, a trapezoid, or a triangle, or a circle. Yeah. But what you want students to be able to do eventually is to discern the difference between an impressionist 
an expressionist, a pointillist. And if you only give them first A, then B, then C, they don't learn to look at what are the surface characteristics of all of these three, but what is the underlying difference? Otherwise, you didn't have three different types of styles. Or also look at what are the surface level differences, but the underlying similarities. That's what you want them to do. So by interleaving, by instead of doing A, 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 B, 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 C, 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 you practice and you learn it. A, B, C, B, C, B, A, C, C, B, B, C, A. You use the same number of moments of practice, but you're constantly asking the student to compare and contrast the different ones to choose what is this an example of. Now, that's interleaving. In that way, you create more points that a student or a learner is capable of saying, oh, this is A, or this is B, or this is C. Yes, um, pointillism is a type of expressionism, but it does it in this way, whereas expressionism does it in that way. That's interleaving. You vary yeah. the different concepts within a very small area. It's not like we're going from Greek iconography to Impressionism to Jackson Pollock uh, mm. uh, thing. It's within a certain area. Yeah. If it's in biology, yeah. it's not that we're going from the lungs to our toenails to um, uh, our elbow, but yeah. within the digestive system going between the small intestine, the large intestine, and the duodenum. Yeah. yeah? Those types of things. Yeah. So then isn't interleaving also connected to something that most teachers are familiar with, that is they try to promote thinking and metacognition in the classroom. I mean, if you work with yes. interleaving, you make the students think a lot, not just yes. do from memory. But interleaving requires, um, in order to be metacognitive, you need to first be cognitive. Yeah. Yeah. So um, um, uh, by interleaving, you create the conditions in which students are forced to think about what they should do instead yeah. of it being a knee-jerk reflex from if it's this, then I do that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but it's at it's it's at a a, a different level. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. first thing you want them to do is to be able to remember and understand the differences. Yeah. The next step is once they know the differences and can remember and understand them to make use of them to compare and contrast. Yeah. So you're forcing them to learn in a way that they can also apply it in a certain way. Yeah. And then you're a bit into already to sort of how you train to to sort of recall from memory. 
you talked a little yeah. about, about that, but can you elaborate a little bit more about how you how you can train to to retrieve from long term memory? Oh, there are other ways. I mean, um, what we normally see teachers tell their students to do, and what students do is um, read it, read it again, read it again, right before the examination. Whereas yeah. empirical theoretical research shows us that reading and rereading is not very effective or efficient, um, but that um, retrieval practice, reading it and then trying to remember it, even if you remember it wrong, yeah. Yeah, leads to better learning. Why is that? If you read it one time, okay, you then read it the second time and you look at it and you say, oh yeah, I remember that. That looks familiar. Yeah, I read that before. So you're, you have this idea that you learned it, but all you're doing is remembering that you read it once before. Yeah. Um, you're not forcing your working memory to think about what the, the, the piece of information is. So if you read it and then by questioning it from make us summarize it, what you just read, that's something different than reading it a second time. By summarizing it, you have to draw it out of your long-term memory. You have to put it in your own words. Those are all cognitive activities which yeah. lead to better learning, but also better Retrieval. So that's yeah. one of them, making use of retrieval practice. Another one is um, uh, what's called, um, what's, I have to think of the words in English, sorry, um, spaced practice. Yeah. What we normally see children doing, and also teachers in their lessons, is that students will spend the night before an hour and a half, two hours, studying for an exam, whereas we know from empirical research, it would have been better in the week and a half, two weeks before the examination to spend four times a half an hour than one time two hours. It's the exact same amount of time, but yeah. by spacing it out, instead of blocking, cramming for it, what you're doing is you're creating a situation in which you constantly have to, after a number of days, return to your long-term memory, bring it back into your working memory. So that path from long-term memory back to your working memory is strengthened, the retrieval strength, whereby you learn it better. And those are all techniques based upon cognitive psychological research in which we know it leads to more effective and efficient learning. Yeah. Uh, in your book, you also write about performance uh, in relation to learning. Like, uh, yeah. 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 Can, um, can you elaborate on that, that as well? The question yeah. is, what's the difference? Yeah. Um, performance is how you do on a test. Yeah. Performance is at any one point in time, you're capable of regurgitating that which you've learned, supposedly learned. Learning is something that's stable, something that um, 
is a change in your long-term memory. That means you don't only know it for the test, but the next day, the next week, the next month, the next year. It's something that's stable, uh, yeah. whereas performance is something that is momentary. Yeah. Um, and it's not that if you, I say it's a change in your long-term memory, so you've learned it for your whole life. That doesn't mean you don't forget it. Forgetting is a normal aspect of learning. Yeah. But um, if you forget it, the relearning of it is then very easy. It's kind of like if you learn to ride a bicycle yeah. and you haven't ridden it for five years, you get on the bicycle, you're a little bit shaky, but it's yeah. not like you have to begin with training wheels again and somebody riding behind you. You've yeah. you've mastered that skill. You've mastered that knowledge yeah. at a certain point and relearning it at a later date is simple. Whereas if you've only performed on an examination, the next time you have to learn it is it's as almost as if you've never learned it before. It's kind of like me at 72. Did I really say that? Yeah? <laughs> that yeah. type of thing. Yeah. So that's that's the difference. It's 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 the difference between being, being stable and being volatile. Yeah. yeah. And learning is stable, performance is volatile. Yeah. Connected to learning, you also write, it's like a headline, no pain, no gain. That yeah. relates to, to the Bjorks. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, uh, Robert this... and Elizabeth Bjork had yeah. five uh, desirable difficulties. Yeah. And I compare it to no pain, no gain, because any good sports coach yeah. Yeah, knows that to get better, um, is sometimes very painful. It it, yeah. it means um, stretching your limits. Yeah. Now uh, Bjorn, uh, Bjorn uh, Robert Elizabeth Bjork came up with the idea of desirable difficulties. They call it making it more difficult, but in a good way. Yeah. So what you do with those things that look like it's more difficult, and that's variability of contexts variability of practice that's the interleaving yeah. space practice uh retrieval practice and um the fifth one is um reduction of feedback all five of these those things appear to make learning more difficult but what they do is they lead to better learning we as teachers yeah. often think we have to give as much and as good feedback as we can to our students. But what we do is we create a dependence by our students on our feedback. What you should be doing is as the students advance, just like scaffolding, removing some of the feedback going from very, very specific to general, to more general, to no feedback, to force the students to think about it themselves instead of that you say no that's wrong it should have been this and this then that second way you're creating a dependence and the more and the better feedback you give over a long yeah. period of time the more of a dependence you create and for the yeah. student it seems more difficult because they have to think 
and thinking is hard. Yeah. It's a cognitive activity. Yeah. And that's why you have these desirable difficulties. You're making it sometimes not even more difficult, but appear to be more difficult, yeah. but in a way that leads to better learning, just like a good track and field coach will have um, the periods between sprinting and recuperation become smaller and smaller so that the runner increases her or his uh, lung volume, uh, muscle strength, uh, re recovery times, and things like that, so that yeah. in, when it's really needed, it can be done better. No yeah. pain, no gain. Yeah. But if you're a teacher, it could still be, I think, a challenge to, to know how to plan so that the difficulties are desirable and not undesirable difficulties for the students. If you know but, how people learn yeah, and you're acquainted with the theories behind things like generative learning strategies or desirable difficulties, then yeah. it's not so hard. It's kind of mm. like a doctor planning um, uh, uh, what intervention to use to help yeah. cure a patient. Yeah. But that assumes that the person knows both the theories behind what we learn yeah. and the theories behind the instructional interventions. Yeah. If they don't have that, it's very difficult. Yeah, yeah, true. Then it gets reduced to a checklist. Yeah. If you see people making use of Barrick Rosenshine's 10 principles as if it's mm -hmm. a checklist, all of my teaching needs to contain all of these elements. Whereas yeah. Barrick himself said, that's not what it is. They're all principles that you can and should use in your totality of teaching, but not each and every one of them in every lesson and not each and every one of them for all of your goals of your education. Mm. But uh, it, it means you have to have knowledge as a teacher. Yeah, true. Which I hope and assume that they have. Yeah, yeah. And if they don't, they can read and buy my books. Yeah, true yeah. as well. Uh, you also have an, an Israeli colleague, Efrat Furst. She calls, yeah. uh, calls the same term, the ice cream and broccoli dilemma. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and wonder how should we help the students? They know that they should choose the broccoli more, but they yeah. like to take the ice cream instead. Um, um, um... So that a lot like of a... people think in self-determination theory that you yeah. should leave it to the students to be able to choose what's best for themselves, and they can't. So what you need to do is you need to create a limited number of possibilities within a certain area. Yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't mean choosing between broccoli and ice cream, but yeah. it's the difference between choosing broccoli with out any uh, uh, onions and garlic or with onions and garlic or with a certain cheese sauce or whatever, mm. but not choosing between broccoli and ice cream. No. Because ice cream usually isn't very good from a dietary point of view. No, true, true. Yeah? But given the chance to choose between the two of them, there aren't very many children who will choose for the broccoli 
No, that's true. So you need to help them or motivate them. You need them. to help them. Yeah. That means yeah. limiting. Um, yeah. um, uh, uh, plan education was yeah. choice within limitations. Yeah. Freedom within limitations. Yeah. So the Can teacher... Can I have, the fr have freedom without the limitations? No. Agree. So that's the whole idea behind it. Yeah. So if I think, since I am a, a former track and field coach as well, oh. if I, yeah. <laughs> so if I should help sort of an elite sprinter, for instance, he can't train at really high performance level so much time. So I would, no. I would let him warm up. I would do some tough exercises and would cool down. I would let him right. succeed with uh, some parts of it. So I would do some parts that wouldn't lead to so much learning, but I would exactly. sort of select. Could you yeah. think the same as a teacher then? Definitely. You could say the warming up is um, uh, checking for prior knowledge. Yeah. Um, uh, I'll keep it as simple as possible. The training itself is then once you're sure of the prior knowledge, and that it's understood, making use of one or more of the desirable difficulties. And the cooling down is then the reflection about yeah. uh, what they've done is the review afterwards of what they've done and why they've done it. Maybe even in terms of metacognition, thinking about their own thinking yeah. and about what they learned. So you can see it in terms of warming up, practice and cooling down. Yeah. Good. It's we an easy way, easy way of thinking yeah. of it. Yeah. We have a book in Dutch, uh, which is um, uh, which I have here. Um, uh, unfortunately, it's not in English, and it's called "Studying with Success" in Dutch. Um, yeah. It's uh, free. Uh, every almost everything I make with a group of people around me, the the group in um, in 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 Belgium, is also Creative Commons open access. Yeah. And in that, we make use of exactly um, that metaphor yeah. of learning is warming up, practice, and cooling down. Yeah. Sounds wise. Yeah. Uh, what was I thinking about now? Uh, I was thinking about something connected to this. Come on, you're not as old as I am. I'm supposed to be the <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I should remember it. Uh, it will come back to me. So look, okay. let's 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 move on. Uh, let's go back to the working memory again. Uh, for instance, at my school, I have all. I think at every school, there are a number of of kids. Everyone has a limited working memory, but there are some that has a very limited working memory. So what can you do sort of to reduce the load if you want? I guess you want to have uh, the most as possible of the capacity to work on the Small content. steps, uh, as, as uh, Barak Rosenshine uh, says, uh, do things in, in, in small steps. Yeah. Um, don't present too many different new and novel pieces of information all at the same time. Don't yeah. choose a... Uh, instructional approach what in the Netherlands you'd call a didactic approach in English speaking yeah. language they talk about pedagogy that's yeah. something for me completely different 
uh, that um, does not lead to learning. Um, for example, we know that um, um, modeling yeah. behavior followed by worked examples, followed yeah. by partially worked examples, followed by an unscaffolded, unhelped uh, 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 problem works yeah. a lot better than discovery learning. Yeah. yeah. So what can you do with the limited working memory? Make sure that all different things that don't help learning don't have to be kept in your working memory while you're trying to learn. So yeah. that's small steps, irrelevant information like um, uh, sexy details, um, uh, 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 teaching approaches like discovery learning that yeah. don't lead to better learning, that you limit those things and you yeah. make use of techniques in which you work within the limits of the working memory. And that's things like modeling behavior and yeah. um, worked examples, partially worked examples yeah. in, in order to do it. So removing as many things that are irrelevant to learning yeah. and making use of only those things that you know are relevant. And that doesn't mean making it boring, no. but it means not having to carry out things that don't eventually lead to learning yeah. because they, they might make it look like more fun, but if in the end you've learned less, yeah, yeah then you've not reached your aim as a teacher and that the students have learned effectively, efficiently, and also enjoyably, because hitting your head against the wall and constantly getting something wrong, yeah. even though it was fun to do it in that way, no. No. is eventually not fun. No. Uh, could you just shortly, every teacher doesn't know what worked examples mean. Oh, okay. I mean you, you described a, a fantastic are... uh, sort of training session or lesson, and one part of that was worked examples. Yeah. Well, um, work, if, if, if you go that, that route from first modeling behavior yeah. and you go, modeling behavior is if I'm going to solve this subtraction problem, first I do this. Oh, um, uh, I can't subtract five from four. So I have to take one of the tens for this reason so that it's then 14 and then I can subtract <clears throat> five from it and we get nine and like this. So this is the way I do it. So you break it down into each of the steps. Yeah. You could call that a cognitive task analysis if yeah. you want to use big words. But uh, and these are the steps you take and these yeah. are the reasons why. That's modeling behavior. Yeah. If you follow that by removing these are the reasons why, but you just show this is step one, this is step two, this is step three, this is step four, you have a worked example. You've yeah. Worked out what you have to do in each of the steps in that example. At that point in time, you ask the student <clears throat> doing that to follow the steps yeah. and maybe even think about what you as a teacher did when you modeled that behavior. Why did you mm -hmm. do that? So that they understand it. The next step after that is removing one of those steps and having the student do that her or himself. Yeah. Yeah. That's often the last step. Yeah. And it's called backwards chaining. Yeah. 
which yep. are snowballing. What you do is then remove a second step and then a third step until what remains is just the problem. In that way, you've gone from modeling all of the steps with the reasons why to worked example, all of the steps without the reasons why, yeah. to partially worked examples, some of the steps, yeah. to solving the problem without any of the help. Yeah. That's a very effective and efficient way of doing it so that the student learns. And then you make use of things like variability of practice, yeah, yeah. interleaving, yeah. in which you yeah. don't only subtract numbers that can be subtracted from each other, but also subtract numbers that can't be, that maybe end up negative, so that they have to think about it in different ways. And you include then the interleaving within the examples that you give, the worked examples that you give. Yeah. So you say, well, here you can do this, but you couldn't do it there. Yeah. Now you talked about math and about thinking. They got me to think. Uh, I interviewed some time ago a British math teacher, Craig Barton, and oh, he, yeah. yeah, he he told me how he worked a lot with Czech for understanding, and and then he also was thinking about Czech for thinking because he found that that he had done something that he thought that the students were thinking of the content and an idea he wanted to have them to understand, but they have caught something totally else. So he, he said yeah. he, he had to rethink what he was doing. So he had to sort of check for thinking in a good way. And, and I think yeah. some teachers I talked to at my own school as well, yeah. if you're struggling with uh, sort of owning your classroom, we're having the, the, the students concentrate. It's, it's easy that you would like to be fun and do fun stuff to, to sort of make them give get their attention but then attention on what and thinking of what exactly yeah 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 Yeah, that's important but that's you know like that's focusing and that's how you choose the 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 instructional approach uh, in 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 order to do that Uh, i've never actually i've never met craig barton Uh, i i would like to yeah Um, but i've never met and and spoken to him so maybe this would be a reason to get in touch with him yeah interesting to talk to so now we're actually over to to teaching strategies, I think, because we have we've been talking to, about teaching yeah, strategies yeah, the whole all, time, all the time, yeah, yeah. Linked they're they're directly. constantly related to each other. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. every teaching strategy you can choose should be based upon how we learn. Yeah, and you can't divorce the two no. from each other. No, the problem yeah. is often at teacher training institutes yeah. is they teach you how to teach without first teaching you Linking how it. students learn. Yeah. And then it becomes a checklist. Oh, then I do this, then I do that without thinking. Yeah. Check for thinking. You want that the teachers also think about what they're doing. Yeah. In your book you write about some strategies you wrote you talked about now about a bit about direct instruction and also explicit instruction then. But you also write a little bit about uh, student-centered learning and cooperative learning. Uh, so could you elaborate a little bit about, you can include well, other first, factors, of course. Of all, but, yeah. Good student-centered learning is teacher-directed. Yeah. It's just 
that simple. Yeah. Um, uh, if your goal is that the student learns as yeah. effectively, efficiently, and enjoyably as possible, yeah. it's your job as the teacher to engineer that situation. Yeah. So good student-centered learning yeah. is good teacher-directed yeah. learning. Maybe you could say, simple. can you say also that is what you're saying now is a way to, to have the students choose the broccoli more and less of the ice cream. You because create you're a situation where less ice cream can be yeah. chosen. Yeah. yeah, you create opportunities. And eventually you want students to realize yeah. that they should do that themselves. Yeah. That's a learning process. Yeah. Yeah, it's you can't just tell them this is healthier for you yeah, no. and expect them to eat the broccoli. Just like no. you can't say, if you do it, this is where you'll learn more. Do it. You have to let them experience yeah. that they get better scores or they remember it next year or that the amount of time they have to spend the night before the test is yeah. less or whatever. You yeah. have to let them experience the benefits of the broccoli, <laughs> yeah, uh, true. Uh, true. To, to say that, with the idea of cooperative and collaborative learning, I used to be a professor of collaborative learning. So yeah. it's not the case that I think collaborative learning is bad or good. No, it has a function. Yeah, and if you use it for its function, yeah, making also use of the. Um, requirements yeah for it yeah it can function um it doesn't make sense to collaborate on a project if nobody knows anything all you get no. is shared ignorance <laughs> yeah that's okay true. um if the boundary conditions are such that you know mm -hmm. that the people who are collaborating have the knowledge that they need to collaboratively work on something yeah. And your goal is not the most efficient learning experience because it will never be with collaborative learning that is the most efficient way of doing it, but that the goal is possibly for the exchange of ideas yeah. in order to solve the problem. Yeah. So that is your goal, yeah. not solving the problem, not learning the content that you need to solve the problem. If that's your goal, then you create a situation in which that can happen, but that requires quite a lot of teacher for the teacher, because yeah. what you see is that most teachers don't know how to make a task, a collaborative learning task, such that it requires collaboration. Yeah. Um, they think... Um, well, I give them a task and I require them to work with each other on it. And what you eventually get is a group of students that hate working together because one student is constantly solving the problem and the yeah. other are just tagging along yeah. and doing nothing. So that means you have to create a task that's so complex that one person alone can't carry out the task 
herself or himself. I did yeah. research on that with uh, Jimmy Zambrano and my daughter Femke Kirchner yeah. and John Sweller on this, on what, how do you create complex tasks in order to necessitate people working together? Because if you can carry it out as quickly and or even more quickly alone, you won't collaborate. So your goal is not solving the problem. Your goal is collaborating with each other yeah. and creating a situation in which true collaboration takes place. Yeah. Which means you have to learn as a teacher, and they don't teach you that at most huh. teacher colleges. How do you create? What is a complex problem? Because yeah. complexity doesn't mean difficulty. You can uh -huh. have a very simple problem that's very difficult. Yeah. And you can have a very difficult problem that's not very complex. It's about the complexity in that one person can't do it alone. Yeah, yeah. you can't uh, without without the proper tools and help. You can't put up a gigantic beam across four meters because you can't yeah. be in both places at the same time. You need to work with someone else, or you need yeah. a certain brace in order to hold it in place. Now, that's not a very difficult task, but it's complex because you can't do it alone. Yeah. Now, most teachers don't learn how to, they think if I give a task, any task that I give, students can work together in teams. Yes, they yeah. can, but they don't yeah. want to, because no. if I can solve it you do without you, yeah. and, and, and as quickly, or even more quickly, because in order to work with someone else, we have costs, they're called transactional costs. Yeah. Um, you have costs in communicating and collaborating into coordinating your efforts. First you do this, then I do that. I have to wait for you. You have to uh, communicate with each other. Those are all extra costs. If those costs are greater than the benefits of working together, Yeah. We call that the homo economicus, the calculating student. Yeah. You're not going to do it. If it no, costs you no. more time and effort to work with others than doing it yourself, you're just not going to do it. No. So the complexity then, that is sort of the key to create interdependence within the group. Yeah. So they have, exactly. have to participate. Yeah. Yeah. You have to make it complex enough that the interdependence is there. Yeah. Then you also have to... Uh, assess it in certain ways. I'm not going to go into that. I could give a whole lecture on that because I used to be yeah. a professor in it. Yeah. And um, but um, there are a lot of reasons why collaborative learning doesn't work, and it's really hard to create good collaborative tasks, good collaborative assessment. It comes back to constructive alignment. Yeah. Yeah. What you want people. To learn should be aligned with how you teach it and that should be aligned with how you assess it yeah. and if they're not aligned yeah then it's not going to work no connected to that could you elaborate on your uh, headline the tail wagging the dog um there's nothing wrong with the tail wagging the dog absolutely not people say it in a very negative way because no. usually the tail is just learning facts in your head. Yeah. And they say, well, the tail, tail is wagging the dog. 
the assessment is determining what they learn and how they learn it. Yeah. But if the tail is being able to creatively solve a complex problem, yeah. then that tail should wag what you teach and how you teach it. Otherwise, it'll never happen. So it's it's always too simple to make use of, and I'm not accusing you of it, but <laughs> no. uh, to use those types of things in yeah. a very negative or pejorative way. There's yeah. nothing wrong with the tail wagging the dog. We the only thing is you're during the right conditions. Then. That this is the tail that we want. Yeah. If it's not the tail that we want, yeah, then it can be very very bad. But if the tail is to be able to um, creatively solve a problem that you've never come up across before in a situation you've never seen before and that leads you to teach it in a certain way and yeah. choose the content in a certain way then it's really really great if you look at my book uh, with Jeroen from Merimbor 10 Steps to Complex Learning yeah. it is the tail wagging the dog because the first thing you ask is what should a airplane mechanic be able to do after she or he has completed the training? Yeah. That's the question. And that should determine how you design and implement your curriculum and your instruction. So my whole book, The Ten Steps, is based upon the presumption that you choose the tail first and based upon the tail, yeah. if everybody's agreeing, this is the tail we want, then you choose the parts of the dog. Yeah. Okay. A slightly other area then. In Sweden, we had the last or the last few times, but the last PISA uh, results, we had really poor results in reading and reading yeah. comprehension so could you elaborate on how do you think i have you no idea be... no no about, about, about sweden but uh, about how to teach reading what, what is sort of it's, it's, it's uh, i mean we can go into the technical aspects of it of uh, phonics as opposed to whole word yeah, yeah? Um, uh, um most people are in agreement that yeah. phonics works and yeah. whole word doesn't we can yeah. go into that. Um, the major problem in any event in the Netherlands yeah. deals with comprehension. And um, the problem there is that um, the way it's taught in the Netherlands, you're taught tricks about how to comprehend or understand a text. What I mean by that is you're taught signal words like thus. Yeah. Yeah. And you're taught that if you come across the word thus, that means a conclusion is being drawn. And the test will say, what conclusion was drawn by Paul Kirchner in this piece of text? Yeah. So what you do is then you look at the, where the thus, thus is, and then you try to say, oh, this is the conclusion that he has drawn. Whereas we know that in order to be able to comprehend the test text, you have to understand, you have to have knowledge. You have to have yeah. a knowledge-rich curriculum. So the teaching of 
reading and comprehension in any event in the Netherlands yeah. has been reduced to learning and applying tricks without having the fundamental knowledge that you need to understand the text. I don't remember which researcher it was who showed that um, you need to understand 95% of a text in order to understand the text. Yeah. Then you can not understand that last 5%. But if it's more than 5%, you really cannot understand what's going on in the text. And my perfect example of that is if you give me a one or two paragraph description of a cricket match, I have no idea what it's about, although I can read every word yeah. aloud to you that uh, they scored um, uh, 40 runs in seven wickets with 12 overs and Lord knows what. I can read it yeah. and very fluently, no problem. Yeah. No. But I have no idea what is going on. And one of the major problems, because um, uh, Pisa tries to determine um, comprehension from longer, more connected texts, yeah. is that if you don't have the knowledge you need to be able to understand it, yeah. then you will score low. No. Whereas yeah. in the Netherlands, on their own examinations, they yeah. score high because yeah. the tests there are based upon the word thus and understanding that a conclusion is being drawn or um, uh, in opposition, then you know that another viewpoint is being done. So children are taught to analyze a text based upon these tricks. And I have no idea what the pedagogy or the didactics of Swedish no, reading instruction is. Right. So I can't say yeah. anything. By the way, we're at 54 minutes at the moment. Yeah, we will soon finalize this. Uh, in in Sweden, there's a lot to talk about how how our students feel, how the, the, their well-being. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's the same in Netherlands or if it is a challenge. Yeah. Uh, um, I can't say very much about that. That's a choice that you have yeah. to make. Yeah. Um, I don't think that the role of a school is to make children feel good. No. I think that the role of a school is to create a situation in which they learn yeah. and which they learn successfully. Yeah. And through learning successfully, you create a mindset by the student that, hey, I can do it. Yeah. And that um, success leads to motivation and well-being although there's a lot more i mean yeah of um, course um, yeah uh bullying uh, cyber bullying um, yeah. all of those things also play a role yeah, in, in school and, and it affects outcome and, yeah um there are other things that you can do like banning the telephone in the school yeah um, that will also create its well-being is a very multifaceted yeah for sure thing in which Learning is just one part yeah. and feeling good about your being able to do something today that you couldn't do yesterday yeah. adds to your well-being. <laughs> yeah, 
True. But it's not the only thing <clears throat> no. that affects your well-being. But that goes, I'm not a social psychologist or a clinical <laughs> psychologist yeah. or a sociologist. I'm a cognitive psychologist. Yes. And I concentrate on things that make learning more effective, efficient, and enjoyable. Yeah. Enjoyable in terms of having a feeling that you've learned something, that you've achieved something. Yeah. Good. And not that it's fun. No. You're you've been but, a coach yourself. You know yeah. that the 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 athlete feels yeah. better if she or he can run the hundred meters, or I don't know if it was in speed skating with Tommy Gustafsson or <laughs> Gustafsson yeah. or, or, or or so. Um, but feels in the long run a lot better in that she or he can throw the shot put or run faster yeah, at the end of the training than that it was a fun training that they all yeah, sat yeah. and laughed. Yeah. But at they the want, end, everybody they want ran progression. slower. They want to develop. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that should be the goal of schools, yeah. not to yeah. be better than someone else, no, but, but to develop yourself, to be better yeah. at the end of the lesson than you were at the beginning yeah. of the lesson. Yeah. Totally Not agree. in comparison. Yeah. Last question. Yeah. Uh, if you weren't an educational psychologist, instead you would start a new school and you would have to focus on something. You could do anything you want. What, what would be the most important sort of the profile of the school? Creating a knowledge-rich curriculum in which teachers make use of proven instructional techniques based upon solid cognitive psychological theories. Good. Uh, there is no sort of right answer. That was probably the right answer. That was my it, answer. It's, it's your right answer. Yeah. yeah. It's but always interesting to hear. So I ask every guest what, what okay. they would prioritize. Okay. So thank you so much. This has been a, a learning conversation for me and I'm sure for all the listeners as well. I hope that I yes. did it in a way that the steps were small enough that yeah, it wasn't clear. too much cognitive load and if you don't understand some of the things almost all of it has been discussed in how teaching happens and how learning happens and um, maybe if you can find a Swedish publisher that would like yeah. to give it a, a, to do it in Swedish then let yeah. them get in, in contact with me. That would be great. I think both these books would be excellent for the Swedish audience. I have no connections, but if you do, yeah, yeah. be my guest to make the connection. Yes, I will. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you. Thank you.